Welcome to the Bentonville Beacon, where we bring you success stories from business leaders and owners about their triumphs and growth in the Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas community. You'll hear about how Bentonville has been the backdrop for incredible growth, not only for businesses and their employees, but in their personal lives as well. Tune in, subscribe, and enjoy hearing about Bentonville, where you get more of what you want and less of what you don't. Welcome back to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast, where we're sharing stories and advice from the leaders behind the meteoric rise of Bentonville, one of the fastest growing and most dynamic cities in the United States, nestled in the Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas in America's heartland. Hey, I'm your host, James Bell, and I am thrilled to share the studio today with Phil Libin. And Phil is a, a serial entrepreneur. If I had to make my bet, I'd say many of you have used at least one of his products. He is the co-founder and past CEO of Evernote. His latest two ventures are All Turtles and Mm-hmm. And All Turtles is a globally distributed product studio, while his newest venture, Mm-hmm, was birthed out of the pandemic and in its latest round raised $100 million from a SoftBank Vision Fund and Sequoia Capital. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's nice to be here, but meteors don't rise, man. You can't have a meteoric rise because meteors fall. It's like that's what they do. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we need we need we need we need a different way to talk about, about Bentonville. Sparking Bentonville's right. Oh, that's actually really good considering one of our local companies and yeah. their yeah. spark yeah. logo. Yeah, rise. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Meteors, I, meteors only fall. I'm gonna make myself a note, and from now on, we're gonna spark that rise. <laughs> I love it. Phil, what should our audience know about you? I don't think anyone has to know anything about me. I am just here because I um, fled San Francisco about two years ago. was just looking for someplace nice to spend a few months, kind of wait out COVID for a little bit. Just got an Airbnb, thought we'd be here for a couple of months and then move on and just kept extending it and extending it and extending it and then building a house and then other stuff. And I guess I guess now we're, we're from here. I just registered to vote here. So I guess that makes it official. I am now from here. Most definitely official. Well, I definitely want to talk about that and Bentonville and about you getting here and your experience. I'd love to know about, mm-hmm, but let's start with All Turtles first. Yeah. What's it all about? Well, All Turtles is a product studio. The idea is we've spent about 25 years in startup land, mostly in Silicon Valley for, for Evernote and, and a few other places. And I just think that the kind of VC startup Silicon Valley treadmill is, is pretty broken. It's pretty inefficient mm-hmm. for lots of reasons. And we just wanted uh, an alternative. We wanted a better way to focus on making important products with really talented people with kind of as little of the nonsense as possible. That's great. Well, you know, as a uh, software engineer turned founder and CEO turned VC, a true serial entrepreneur, I guess I would say that you should know, having lived the life in the Valley about this, you're, you're one of those mythical creatures that we hear about. And here you are. <laughs> Bigfoot so, or something. Yeah, sure. So talk about mm, what is... What, what, what does the company do? Where in the world did the name come from and how are things going? Well, uh, mm-hmm is a product review you kind know, of video communication superpowers. We started it as a joke, honestly, uh, about two months into the pandemic. So, uh, you know, we're working at All Turtles. We had a few different projects and the pandemic happened. We all started working at home. We all went to, you know, remote and it sucked. I mean, everything was just mm-hmm. kind of dreadful and boring and back to back to back video calls. And by May, we just started goofing around trying to make ourselves laugh a little bit on video. So I had, um, had like this old camping towel 
that was green and I stuck it behind me and I used it to like put like pictures and stuff on Zoom and backgrounds. And we like hacked up a little prototype thinking that it would just be something to keep ourselves entertained for a few weeks until we got sick of it. But every time I used it for something, it, it, people really liked it. And so I, I, you know, texted a few people whose uh, product opinions I really respected. And everyone said, hey, you're onto like a real thing. And so we realized pretty quickly that what started as a joke actually has the potential to fundamentally change the way we communicate. So we uh, started a company, raised some money, hired some people, and so on. Awesome. Man, you know, I was doing some adjunct work with a, a university and I think I could have kept, my graduate students were okay, but I feel like I needed a tool like yours to keep my uh, undergrad students engaged. And I can't wait to see more of it here in a moment. Well, let's talk about those communication superpowers that mm -hmm, provides. Uh, will you share more with us? Yeah, I think the main philosophy that, that, that we have, and, and, and this is really, a big part of this is my thinking this really got sharper when I moved to Bentonville, living here, is, is we're we're kind of calling this movement uh, the, the, the out-of-office world. And, and when I say out-of-office, I, I, I kind of want that to sound like I'm saying out-of-jail. <laughs> like, there used to be this thing that dominated the very center of your life that severely constrained what you could do, and now you're free from it. You're, you're, you're out. And, and we think that it creates this, uh, we call this the, the U-loop. O-O-O means stands for out-of-office. We like stupid names, in case you couldn't tell already. Uh, and the basic idea of the U-loop is that for, for creative people, for, you know, for knowledge workers, for people who work in their laptops, if you improve the quality of life, that leads to an improvement in the quality of work. So if you let people you know, have time to spend with their families and take care of their health and live in a nice place in a good neighborhood and not commute for three hours every day, like if you do those things, for creative people, it improves the quality of their work. And when you improve the quality of work, you get more success, more satisfaction, more money, which you can then invest back into improving the quality of life even more. And so you get this like you get this virtuous cycle of, you know, improved quality of life, improves quality of work, improves quality of life, improves quality of work. And it kind of keeps spinning. And this this is the cycle that can make the world better for hundreds of millions of people. And so when I came to, to Bentonville, I wasn't originally planning to do any work here. I mean, this is just a place I kind of thought, well, I can live anywhere because my job is fully distributed. Let's live in a nice place. But what I actually realized is I was actually being far more productive than ever because it was such a nice place, because I could pick which environments to be in and things like that. And, and so we, we made this product give you the kind of communication superpowers that lets you be fully productive wherever you are so that you could be where you really want to be, not where you have to be. That's very cool. I mean, you're living, you're living what you preach. I feel like you're, le you're, you're kind of like a good version of the Pied Piper. You're leading the workers out of the office, unshackling them and giving them a chance to be to make their their lives not be locked to where their office is right the real opportunity to work anywhere they want yeah and i i think it's a more humane way to live yeah uh you know people people spend a lot of time talking about life work balance work life balance and i think just that framing is already a problem because even mm -hmm. when you frame it like that it, 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 in inherent in that framing is the fact that those two things are pulling against each other they're somehow in conflict and you need to like find a way to balance work and life. But that's not the way it used to be. Like work and life, it's only fairly recent that those were two separate things. For, for, for most of human history, right, it was like, it's one thing. It's, well, it's not, there's no work and life. There's just life. And in life, you, you, you make a living. You do things. But it's just life. It's one thing. And I think that, that, that fissure, that split, that work-life split is something that happened to us in, in the past few decades, largely driven by the way we did urban planning and offices and stuff like that. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we, I want to, I want to let as many people as possible go back to just having life 
and in that life they do meaningful work and they're well you know compensated for it but it's but it's life it's 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 one thing it's not work life balance it's it's work life integration or it's just life you've given folks the opportunity to live the lives they deserve and that they want it's we're pretty amazing to. we're trying to yeah that is so cool so as you said you're here in Bentonville here you are the uh, co-founder and CEO of a, a bay area company but you're in Bentonville. Take us through the journey a little bit more, if you will, of what led here. How did you hear about Bentonville in the first place? Well, I heard about it because my, my partner's brother-in-law got a job at a company here. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Walmart? I've heard is of Is that them. how you say it? And when we were looking to just go somewhere quiet for a few months, we were in San Francisco. They said, yeah, it's nice here. You get like an Airbnb. You can have like a tree in your backyard. I mean, we kind of figured everything was locked down during the pandemic. So it didn't matter where we were. I just wanted someplace quiet. Mm-hmm. So loaded up the car, drove from San Francisco to here, and that was it. And we literally didn't think for more than a few hours about whether we should come to Bentonville because it was such a low stakes move. It was just like, well, I don't want to stay in the middle of, of Mission District in San Francisco. Right. And any place we go to is not going to be that different because we're going to be just staying inside and only there for a few months. So like, who, who cares? Why overthink it? Uh, so we just did it and it was great. And then when we got here, you know, for the first couple of months, uh, yeah, we pretty much just stayed, you know inside or in the yard and ordered food. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was nice. But as things started to open up a little bit and we started to, to go outside and like eat out and meet a lot of people here and kind of really get a brace for the community, I just kind of thought, yeah, this is, this is just super nice. Like, and so we, we planned on trying a few different cities before we decided where we wanted to be. But I mean, it just turned out like, no, this is, this is pretty great. So let's just, let's just come. Let's just say that we're here. You struck gold on the first try. Yeah, yeah, I got lucky. The, the goal was not to overthink it. I think had I actually like, you know, had I put in as much effort into deciding where to move as I do when I'm like researching what pocket knife to buy on Amazon, uh-huh. I couldn't have gotten around to moving here because I would have been like, oh, but do I want this kind of pocket clip or, you know, that, that steel or this other steel? Like I, like I kind of obsess over random decisions. And so the only reason we were in here is because it was such a low stakes thing because we didn't think we would say that it was just easy. So I'm, I'm glad that I didn't think this was going to be permanent or else I probably would never have pulled the trigger to come here. Well, that's cool. You've kind of mentioned some of the ways, but how has Bentonville changed you personally and professionally? Well, but I think those two things are the same, personally mm-hmm. and professionally for me. I think I'm, 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 I'm lucky enough to get, not make that distinction. I mean, it's, just, it's just life. And uh, if, it's, you know, if it's important to me, I'm probably working on it, just because why not? And I think, well, for one thing is this is the first time where I really feel like I kind of care about my physical community. Mm-hmm. And like I know my neighbors. I never used to know my neighbors before, literally. I think this is the first time where I know who my neighbors are. Because wow. uh, I'm living in, you know, I was living in, in San Francisco and in Boston and New York, always kind of big cities. And I never knew my neighbors. I never really cared. And I never, I never even like went out to eat near, near where I lived because, you know, I would eat out all the time. But I would eat out like for work when I was traveling near the office. So like where I actually lived, like I barely lived there. I just slept there. It didn't matter to me. And so the actual physical, like the community, there was no community. Mm-hmm. And here for the first time, it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here most of the time I, I live here, I work here. So I know who my neighbors are. I recognize people on the street. And it's an actual physical community in the sense that like the person serving me pizza at the Meteor is someone that I see all the time just kind of walking around town. It's not like a physically separate set of people. Like yeah. it would be in San Francisco. Like in San Francisco, you know, if you're going into a restaurant, like the waiter at the restaurant is probably commuting for two hours just, you know, just to get there. You never encounter those people in, in normal life. So it's been really eye-opening to live in, it's almost like Bentonville is like the opposite of the metaverse. It's like an actual physical community of people who live near each other. And that's cool. I've never had that before. 
I'll take the opposite of the metaverse. I'm not really buying it yet. Me too. All I got to say is if the metaverse is what I've seen so far, which is essentially second life rebirth, I want no part of that. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Sounds like Northwest Arkansas has had some surprises for you. How else has this place surprised you? What's the biggest way it surprised you? I mean, the, 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 the main way that it surprised me is that you know, is that, is that we're, we're here, that I'm, we're here and we like it here and we're building a house and, you know, planning on just staying. Like that wasn't, I didn't expect that. And it, it was, you know, I'd spend my whole life, I'd spend my whole life never really thinking about where do I want to live? Like I never asked myself that question, where do I want to live? Because work was always much more important to me and work was always tied to a particular location. And so it didn't really matter where I lived. I never even thought to like have preferences. It was like, well, where do I want to work? Well, I was doing tech startups, and so San Francisco was the best place to do that. So I needed to be in San Francisco. Did I like living in San Francisco? Not really. I mean, I, parts of it are really nice, but you know, just parts to like about. It. There's a lot of parts not to like about it. But it, but it, like, I never even considered that I had the agency to think like that. And so it's been a complete revelation to just be like, well, yeah, where do I want to live, and what kind of a place do I want it to be? And then once you kind of start thinking about that, like, I don't know, I just start caring a lot more about the local ballot initiatives and, mm-hmm. you know, what gets permitted where. And it's like, I kind of feel like there's all these things that like normal people, you like, you see on TV shows, normal people caring about, but I was always like, I don't know what that name of that is. That's not for me. And now I'm like, yeah, I'm a person who lives in a neighborhood in a house and has issues and neighbors. And I don't know. It's very cool. And I think it, it really influences the way that we think about building the companies and the products. Right, because we are we are trying to make products that kind of give you back that real life and give you the option and give people and give companies the option to 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 do really productive, very high value work without without disrupting that. And that's a, a great way to live. I too have lived around a few places around the country. Went to New Orleans, Nashville, Chicago, Denver. Yeah, stayed in Memphis a lot longer than I did the rest of those places. But it wasn't until we came here that I felt that same sense of community. And that my wife, I've been married to for three years, but I've known probably 10, that she's told me that same thing. It's the first time she's felt that sense of community somewhere. Right. And, and as somebody who, by the way, isn't from the U.S., her, it's really been different for her yeah. in that way. Tell me a story. Something where you look at it and you think, gee, that's a, that's a hashtag because Bentonville moment. Maybe it's unique to here or it could only happen here. It tells the essence of this place. Hmm. <laughs> Well, we went out, because it's not, it's not in Bentonville, because this is on Beaver Lake. So we decided um, once in a while, we'll, we'll rent a cabin for a week up in, uh, near Eureka Springs mm-hmm. in Beaver Lake. And it's great, because I can work from the cabin. I can work from anywhere, so I don't work from, from a cabin. Sure. And it's like very, very nice. We're actually going out there in a couple of weeks. It should be peak foliage season. And, nice. uh, you know, I'm not taking the time off. I'll be working, but I'll be working f- sitting among the most beautiful scenery. And it's just like, it's very, it's very calming. Like I'm just in like in a much better mood when I'm, when I'm, when I'm over there. And a few weeks ago we were, we were out on the lake and we went out with some friends on a pontoon boat, which I didn't know pontoon boats were, uh, but we went out on a pontoon boat and got to the middle of the lake and, and broke down. Uh, and the boat <laughs> kind of broke down and wasn't going anywhere. And we were kind of stuck in this middle of the lake. And we had this feeling of like, I kind of knew that nothing bad was going to happen. I'm not sure why I knew that, but I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like worst case scenario, like I think I can swim, so I can probably just, you know, swim to the lake and. We hung out on this boat and sure enough, you know, about a half hour later, this other couple came by on their boat and asked us if we needed any help and then towed us, you know, towed us to the, to the, to the dock. Uh, and the whole time was just this like very pleasant on a boat with some beer, 
good friends, you know, good company. Things are kind of going wrong, but not like not that badly. Like it's all sort of fine. And then we had, you know, complete strangers come and 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 bail us out. Yeah, it was just kind of perfect. Like it's a very, in some sense, a very mundane story, but that didn't happen to me very much before. That is so cool. And that is very hashtag because Biller hashtag because Northwest Arkansas. Really, I think of this place as Northwest Arkansas is, think of that as the city and Bentonville and Rogers and Lowell and Springdale and Fayetteville and the other towns are really, they're the neighborhoods, Yeah, right? They, there's something there for everybody. Well, you know, if I, if I had come to Bentonville, let's say three years ago, mm-hmm. you know, kind of before COVID, before all this out of office change, I would have thought, I think that Bentonville is, was exceptional, meaning, hey, it's really cool, yeah, but it can't be duplicated. It's like, it's really exceptional. It's really cool. It's unique. And it's because we've had, you know, decades of investment by, you know, a couple of companies, really one big company by, you know, one big family, very concentrated decades of, you know, invest public investment and philanthropy has really made it a a unique and exceptional place. But now I don't really think like now, three years later, I don't think it's exceptional. I think it's a prototype. It's like of, of what's possible for, for the next hundred small cities in the U.S., because because of the out of office changes, because more and more people, not everyone, but more and more people will be able to live where it's nice to live and still hold whatever job they want to hold. You don't need a single large corporation. You don't need a single family mm-hmm. to provide the kind of economic basis to have places be this nice. I think we, we can have lots of places become as nice as Bentonville. And Bentonville goes from being exceptional to just being you know, a prototype. It, it's pointing towards a happy vision of small city U.S., and to me, that's actually much more interesting. Like, I'm actually much less interested in exceptional places because, like, you know, that's kind of, they're kind of a curiosity. But if literally, like, yeah. you can never reproduce it, like, it's not that much you can learn. Like, so what? You know, maybe you're lucky enough to live here. But the, the reason that I'm so interested in Bentonville now and the reason that I'm investing here and we're building, you know, companies here is I don't think it's exceptional. I think, I think it is a prototype of, of what can be exported to another hundred, you know, small, small cities uh, all over the U.S. and eventually over the world. And that's going to, it's going to change the way that, I think hundreds of millions of people live. Wow. Thinking about, you know, from a retail perspective, Bentonville changed the world. I believe from some, th- because some things that are happening here in the, I'll flip it over the wellness and healthcare space, we're mm-hmm. going to change the world. And yet another way that we're, we're really changing the world, thinking about, uh, I haven't thought about it that way. I tell folks we're, you know, I don't want us to be the next Austin. I don't want us to be the next San Francisco. I want us to be the next best version of us. Other cities can think that way, but I would love it if we were, like you said, a prototype, the way that it ought to be done and that people can use and uh, model to build their own best thing. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Since you arrived here on the scene in Bidville, I've noticed you've been out in the community doing some things with startups, with uh, the educational ecosystem and so on. Could you tell us about that, about your your opportunities that you've had to work with those areas? Yeah, I've been lucky enough to uh, be invited to uh, uh, help out with some classes at, uh, uh, at the University of Arkansas uh, here. I co-taught a class at the business school last semester with, uh, with Dean Waller mm-hmm. about important questions in distributed work. We got to experiment with some of, the, some of our philosophies for how to structure efficient communication that were, that were hybrid, some, some in person, some on video. I've participated in a bunch of you know, startup competitions and events and yeah it's actually been, it's just been really cool to see the the entrepreneurial ecosystem here and 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 we we're we're building some stuff here so we we are we're working on some restaurants we're working on some other some other ideas uh you know i didn't didn't we didn't expect to be doing any work here mm-hmm. but i guess it's kind of like you know when like like 
like mafia, you know, members when they like go into the witness protection program and they get uh -huh. like relegated to some small town. At first, they're like, they don't do anything, but eventually they're going to wind up like holding up trucks because like, it's just what you do. It's the life. I kind of feel the same way. It's like, we weren't planning on actually doing any business here, but like, yeah, we're here and it's the life and there's so much stuff to do. There's such a, sure. there's such an appetite to actually invest in things and do things and things that are more like real world things, not, not just doing software. Uh, that is great. So I, uh, it's been really cool to see the, to, to see the entrepreneurial ecosystem, to be, to be welcomed by it, uh, and to have an opportunity to, to participate in it. So I'm intending on doing a bunch of stuff here. Awesome. Well, as an economic developer, that just, that just makes my soul very happy. <laughs> uh, what is, you know, coming from a place like San Francisco, from the Valley, I mean, what has surprised you about the startup ecosystem here? Honestly, the, the startups here are like, you know, they're like just as good and just as stupid as the startups in San Francisco and anywhere else. Like for the most part, startups are dumb. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly unique about the ones in, you know, in the Bay Area or in San Francisco or anywhere else. I do think that there's, there's a few things that I think Silicon Valley gets right. And there's a whole bunch of things that I think Silicon Valley gets wrong. And I think here it's, you know, the, the, there's, there's a little bit of each. The companies that I've seen here tend to focus on more real problems. And the companies that I've seen, the startups that I've seen in, in, in the Bay Area and in San Francisco tend to, tend to chase opportunities more than focus on problems. I prefer to focus on problems. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of getting more of that here. The flip side, I think, uh, here people are more conditioned to maybe be more modest, more, more reasonable in their plans, which I actually think is often a mistake for, for, for startups. Mm -hmm. um, it is often, it's often easier to do the much more ambitious thing than the sensible thing, because, you know, you don't really do anything yourself anyway. So it's all about how many people you're going to talk into it. And it's easier to like convince people to go on this crazy journey with you. If it's a really epic journey, than if it's like something reasonable. So one of the, one of the things that Silicon Valley does really well, I think is, is, is startup founders tend to think really big. Uh, and here, I think people have been conditioned to be like, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to self-censor a little bit. I'm going to be a little bit more modest. And, and I think that's actually often, often stands in people's way. I would encourage everyone to, you know, you have an idea. I would, I would encourage everyone to think about like, what is ridiculously the most ambitious version of that idea? And like, what is, what is, what is the, the biggest, most ambitious version of this idea that you can possibly imagine? And then do one click less than that. Like, like just step back, just, just one, just like, just like, dial it up to 11 and then like, you know, notch it down to 10. Whereas often here, I think like people will maybe like, you know, start at like a three or four in ambition, but you know, but the ecosystem's strong everywhere. But, but, but ultimately what I've realized is I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't care where, I don't care where companies are. I don't care about Northwest Arkansas as a great place to make companies. I care about Northwest Arkansas as a great place to live and companies are just made of people. Mm -hmm. And if it's a great place for people to live, I don't care where they work. They live here and more and more, they're going to be working near where they live because a lot of us are doing that. And so where's a company headquartered? You know, where's other people? It doesn't matter. Like what matters is what's a great place to live. I think, yeah. I think cities are going to start competing, not based on what companies they can attract, but on what people can they, can they attract? Like they're going to start competing, not based on like tax breaks for companies. They're going to start competing based on quality of life for people. And that's great. Because like ultimately it's it's all just us. It's all just people. Even companies are just people. So I think it's very healthy if uh, when places start really competing with each other, boasting about really trying to optimize for the quality of life of the people that live here. Uh, and that'll that'll be the next version of economic development, which wow. is different from what it used to be before. Because before you had to start thinking about the company first. That's right. Now you can start thinking about the people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
goodness, I'm not a traditional economic developer. I mean, this is my first economic development job. I've been doing it two years. And I, in some ways, don't look at myself as an economic developer. I'm just trying to help people live the lives they want. And, you know, in a place where we can do that. Just this morning, I was talking with folks about this whole concept of, you know, we need to create the experiences people want. We need to make sure this is an amazing place to live. And that takes makes everything else take care of itself these days. Right. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. So we talked about startups. Let's go back to education a moment. What surprised you uh, so far about education, whether it's University of Arkansas or I'm sure you're familiar with the Ignite uh, program, mm-hmm. the CAPS program we have here? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, um, I, you know, did, did some stuff at, at the University of Arkansas last uh, last semester. And, and that was that was great. That was really fun. And we had this whole way of teaching the class that was, again, a hybrid of video and, and not. And then this summer, I went to, I, went, I was back, I spent a month back in, in, in the Bay Area. I, I attended this uh, Stanford program where I took some classes uh, at Stanford. And that was much more of the traditional, like we were just sitting in a lecture room with someone lecturing. And, and the big, the surprising thing for me was just how weird and unnatural that felt. Because I was like, wait, what, like, what's going on? Like, I, like this, this guy is speaking way too slowly and I can't, like, can't fast forward it. I'm like, this is weird. And then like, somebody interrupts him to ask a question, but it's a dumb question. And I'm like, wait, I, I have to sit here while this person like asks a dumb question. I can't just like skip to the next question. I don't care about this question. And so there was like parts of that whole like synchronous, everything is in person experience that were actually just inferior. Now, parts of it were brilliant. And, and some mm-hmm. of it, we did like very hands-on exercises at Stanford and it was great. And it was like, oh yeah, I'm really glad we're here in person and, you know, not doing this on, on, on Zoom or something. But parts of it didn't make any sense at all after what we had just done at the University of, 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 of Arkansas. And I didn't really realize that because it, I didn't realize that until I got to Stanford and it was like, well, actually, wait, in, in, in many ways, this is, this is worse. And so I guess like it's very much to the credit to Dean Waller and to the school there about how open-minded they were and just trying all of this like new stuff that it was actually still very cutting edge. We didn't think of it that way. We just saw we think about doing stuff, but they were very open-ended, uh, open-minded. They, they, they tried stuff that really hasn't been tried in most schools. I think it worked pretty well. I think we're going to make it better and better. And it didn't come as a surprise to me until I was back in like the traditional environment and had the contrast of being like, yeah, I think I was actually learning a lot more back in Fayetteville than I am, than I am here. <laughs> yeah, that was unexpected. I didn't expect to basically hear you say, my surprise came at Stanford. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Sort of changing chapters on uh, this episode. And since we can't do founder therapy, which is maybe I'll found that company one day, just call it founder therapy. Let's do founder advice. Yeah. Um, you know, I often ask folks like you about first time founder advice, but you're a serial entrepreneur and I'd like a serious serial entrepreneur. And so I'd like to know from you how your ventures have differed or I guess the question I'm looking for is, is there one secret formula for success or is, are there many or is each one just unique or the better way of putting it or thinking about it is how has the experience changed for you each time? Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot. I think, think of it like, like I, I think we have a, a pretty unrealistic expectation for what being a founder or being an entrepreneur mm-hmm. is in, in society. And we kind of fetishize certain things that are probably not right. Think about it like this. Let, let's say you were a skier. Forget about Sutterford. Let's say you're a skier. Let's say you're like, you're in your, you're in your early 20s and you are a great skier. Well, I am definitely not. I've been skiing once in my life. Never going to do it again. But let's just say you're an amazing skier and, uh, you know, you can ski whatever, moguls or bumps. You're like Olympic level and you're there skiing. You're 22. And you kind of know that you're banging up your knees. 
Because, you know, it's skiing. It's a physical thing. You're obviously like banging up your knees and like, it's okay. You know, you, you, you take care of your knees a little bit, but you know that, you know, 30 years later when you're in your 50s, like, are you going to be a better skier at 50 than you are at 20? Like, no, no one's going to be like, oh my God, you must be such a better skier. You've got 30 more years of skiing experience than you did in your 20s. Like, yeah, okay. In some sense, you're probably better because you have 30 years of skiing experience, but in, in, in much more important real senses, you're nowhere near as good because you're not 20 years old anymore. You don't have the same knees. You don't have the same muscles. And people understand that because they think, well, you know, knees are hardware. So of course it's going to get banged up. But when people think about being a founder, being a CEO, they kind of think that like, well, but your brain is, is software, mm -hmm. but it's not. Your brain is also hardware. There's nothing magical about your brain that's like not true about your knees. They also get banged up. And so when people say like, oh, well, like, you know, fifth time startup, you're a CEO for 30 years, like it must be, you must be so much better at it. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not better at 50 than I was when I was 20. Just like you wouldn't expect a skier to be better at 50 when they were, when they were 20. Yeah, I know a few more things. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's like certain skills that I have that are different that I've developed, but I'm, but I definitely, there's many, many things that I'm worse at. And it is like, it is a physical activity and it is a, it is a brutally difficult physical activity. And I think a lot of problems that founders have is because like society doesn't quite understand this. It doesn't, doesn't realize that like just, just you know, that it is, it is pretty punishing. And you can't, just like you couldn't ski the same way at 50 as you could when you were 20, you can't CEO the same way either. You need right. to find like, you need to find a different way of doing it uh, if you're going to be productive at all. And I think from that observation, there's like a lot of things that fall out of that, including like my biggest general advice to founders or people thinking about starting a company for the first time is just don't do it. Like, just don't do it, man. It's not worth it. Like, just say no, you know, get a job. Like, why, why are you doing this? It's, it's, it's really, really hard. Your chances of success are very, very small. You're going to pay the price regardless of whether you succeed or fail. You're going to pay a very serious price mm -hmm. for doing it. So don't do it. Like, seriously, like if you're going to like take one thing from this interview, it's like, do not do it. Don't start a company. Just, 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 just say no. And certainly don't do it for the wrong reason. And I think a lot of, a lot of the reasons that people have are the wrong reasons. You know, the most common one is people may think that it's a good way to make money. And this is just not right. We all know that like the vast majority of startups fail. Like it's not, a, it's not a, like your, your expected lifetime net earnings are not increased if you waste a decade trying to make a company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, some people make money, but very, very few. So if you want to make money, like rise through the corporate ranks at Walmart or something, don't, don't, don't bother starting a company. You know, some people think they want to start a company because, um, you know, maybe they think that it's like a good way to like wield power. You know, you want to be the boss and like, come on, it's not, right? Like, when you're running your own company, everyone's your boss, like mm -hmm. all of your employees, all your customers, everyone in the media, right? It's like, it's like an inverse pyramid. You're like, you're, 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 you're the guy all the way at the bottom and literally every single other person is your boss. I mean, they, they get to like tell you what to do and that's what it feels like. So like all of these are pretty bad reasons for starting a business. And most people start businesses for these bad reasons because they think it's kind of cool mm -hmm. and it's not. So yeah, so I guess my main advice is don't do it. If you're going to do it anyway, because you can't not do it because you've got some idea some problem that you're so in love with that you're like, I have to do this. I can't not do this. Then yeah, then there's, okay, then we can talk. There's other things to know that might make it a little bit less damaging, a little bit more likely to succeed, but only around the edges. Like it's still yeah. going to be damaging and you're still probably going to fail. <laughs> so that's kind of the main thing is like, don't start a company unless you're working on something that in full knowledge of the, ex of the price that you're going to pay, you still do it because you can't not do it because it's so worthwhile. Much more eloquently put, eloquent, eloquently, that word I can't say today, <laughs> put than, than I, I, I could ever put it. I've advised, counseled, mentored a, a fair number of entrepreneurs, more than a thousand in a decade. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the first things I usually tell them when they're really, really early stages, congratulations, you're going to fail. 
Yeah. And then we back into why, you know, there's a good chance of that and, and whether they want to do it. And then we get to find out. Putting on your investor hat, what's, what's the one thing, and I know there are many things, but what's one thing that startups must do? To get venture capital investment in particular. Well, I don't think startups need to have venture capital investment. I think that yes. I think you should decide if you if that's what you want. Uh, it's not it's not right for every you know for every startup. I do think that there's a, there's there's my my most actually useful piece of advice, which is the advice that comes right after what you just asked me, which is let's say you got venture capital investment. What do you do? What do you do after? This mm-hmm. is this I'm totally serious about. Feel free to ignore your investors as soon as they've given you money. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to take their phone calls. You don't have to have them tell you what to do. You can completely ignore them. It does not matter. Like if you are stressed out because you've got like an investor that's just like after they've already invested in you, mm-hmm. just ignore them. Because all the only thing you need, you don't, you don't need their introductions. You don't need any of that stuff. All you need from them is when you do the next round, you want to put in more money. They will do that if your company is succeeding by the time you do the next round. And if your company is succeeding and you've been and you've completely ignored them, they're still going to put money in. And they're not going to do that if your company is not succeeding, regardless of how regardless of like how much you've paid attention to them and how many of your their calls you've taken. So if your company's not doing well, they're not going to be like, yeah, I'll put more money in anyway, just because you know you've always done what I've asked you to do. So once you have investors, talk to them when they're useful. And as soon as they stop being useful, just just feel free to ignore them. And it's like it's literally like a superpower. It's just like yeah, I mean, I, I, I tell this to a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, and they're they're kind of surprised. Like you can do this. I'm like yeah, of course you can do this. Why? Why? And in fact, in fact, why 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 wouldn't you? In terms of how to get investors, I mean, that's a whole other thing. It's it's. I, I would say the most important thing is to understand that your job is uh, your job. Okay, let me, let, me, let me back up from that. So I, I was a VC, as you said, for for a couple of years, and I did some math. I was an early stage check VC, so I did seed rounds and A rounds mostly, a little bit of B rounds, but mostly seed and A, and uh, at, a, at a top firm, at General Catalyst. And during a year, I interacted with about 3,000 startups. And, and that wasn't like, that wasn't that atypical. It's pretty standard for like an early stage VC. You're going to see about 3,000 startups a year. Out of those 3,000, I had meetings with about 600. So the rest of them were, you know, just send me a pitch or something. But I had meetings with about 600. And out of those 600, I would invest in two or three. So the funnel was basically 3,000 to three. Again, very typical. It's not like mm-hmm. it was nothing exceptional, as you know. That's just what the numbers are. So now think of that from the, from the entrepreneur's perspective. If you want me to invest, you have to be the most impressive thing I've seen all year. Literally. If you're not the most impressive that I've seen all year, it's just not going to work. If you're the most impressive pitch I've seen today, that's nowhere near good enough. <laughs> You're the most important, impressive pitch I've seen this month. It's nowhere near good enough. You've got to be the most impressive thing I've seen all year or you're not going to get an investment. And that's just, that's just how it works for early stage stuff. So what do you learn from that? I think, well, I think there's two things. First is you've got to ask yourself a really hard question. Who am I going to be impressive to? And what exactly about this is going to be the most impressive thing they've seen all year? And like th- those two things like really go hand in hand because like not everyone mm-hmm. is impressed by the same things. So first you've got to make sure that like you're talking to people who might think that you're the most impressive presentation that they've seen all year. And then second of all, what is it about your presentation that's going to meet that bar? And if you're not going to meet that bar, then don't waste your time. You're just not, you're not going to get that investment. The, 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 the main thing that kind of comes out of all that is this understanding that it's like, if you're an entrepreneur, you're pitching an an early stage investor, your main job is you're the entertainment. Your main job is just to not be boring because everything else is. So if you can at least stand out by being like the most entertaining pitch they've seen all year, then, you know, then at least you have a shot. There's lots of other ways you can be impressive as well. 
But, but that's the main thing. It's like, just be realistic about it. How are you the most impressive thing that this person has seen all year? Why? And if you don't have a good answer, then you're not. Then, 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 then don't waste your time. Wow. So I've heard two really amazing pieces of uh, almost backwards advice here. <laughs> Ignore your investors and just be impressive. And they're, you know what? They're wonderfully freeing pieces of advice because all that other garbage <laughs> that founders have to go through because of following the advice that yeah. doesn't say that. It's, it's just really, it's really freeing. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, ignore them after they've given you money if they're not being helpful. Obviously, if they oh, are, then that's course. great. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it's like, for example, every time I like judge some kind of a pitch competition or something like that, I, there's always a slide that has a TAM, total addressable market. Oh, yes. right? Everyone's my got favorite. their TAM slide, right? I have never, ever, 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 ever in my life made a TAM slide. I've never done it. I've never done it. I'm never going to do it. I've never presented one. I've never made one. I've never paid attention when someone else has presented one to me. No one ever has. No one in the history of the universe has ever looked at a TAM slide and had anything to, to say about it. Other than, you know, if you're just like in the business of giving general advice, you can say like, oh, you need a TAM slide. No, you don't. You don't need one because you can't possibly be impressive because either you're talking to someone who doesn't understand how big the opportunity is, in which case nothing you can do is going to get them to invest in. You shouldn't be talking mm -hmm. to them in the first place. Or you're talking to someone who does understand how big the opportunity is, in which case, what's the point of it? So like, you're going to have a few minutes to be among the most impressive things that they've seen. Why would you waste any amount of that on something as generic as some kind of Venn diagram intersection, you know, showing the total addressable market of, 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 of something, something, something. Looked at from that lens, it really is clarifying. It really, and like, but it's, it's a little bit harsh too, because it means that most people, yeah, they shouldn't be wasting time because they're not going to be that impressive. But if you want to be, there's, you know, there's ways to do it. Awesome. Okay, here's a question that I think I've only ever asked one time before on this podcast, and I probably should ask everybody about it because there's, in, in my mind, probably the greatest learning experiences come from failure. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know, I'm sure you have at least a couple of stories of, of failure. I, I would welcome the opportunity to hear a story of perhaps even epic failure some significant story of failure and how did it shape the way that you behave or think or what you believe? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to say about that. One thing that's probably worth talking about is just this concept that you learn a lot from failure because you do. It's totally true. Mm -hmm. It's totally true. Also learn a lot from Wikipedia, which that's is true. often, often cheaper than, than, than failing. So yes. almost all the time that you hear someone say that they learned a lot from failure, it's like, okay, yeah, that's interesting. But like, if your goal is to learn a lot, you don't actually need to like do something to fail. You could just that's read true. about it and it's going to be almost as good and a lot cheaper. So I think part of, part of, uh, part of this is, is, is from that mythos, that the fetishization of startups that says that uh, failure is okay. That, well, look, you don't really get penalized for failure. And so if you start a company and fail, so well, what's the big deal? You don't get penalized and you learn a lot. No, it is a big deal. Failure really, really, really hurts. Startup failure yes. is brutal. It's damaging. It ruins people. Not to say that it ruins everyone, but it damages a lot of people in very mm -hmm. serious ways. Damages their health, damages their relationships, damages them financially, damages their reputation. Not all the time and not everyone to the same amount, but it's painful. And like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't like, we shouldn't brush it away. Uh, it's another one of these reasons where I say like, don't, don't just start a company on a whim because like it's, it's, it's hard. Startup failure is brutal. Startup success is worse, <laughs> right? Like, like if you think failure is hard, try succeeding. <laughs> like that, that, that's what breaks relationships and, mm -hmm. and, and, and damages people. 
Because man, like if you're actually succeeding, like failing is easy. You don't do anything. You just fail. Just sit back and fail, whatever. Like it hurts, but you don't, you know, easy to succeed at failing. (laughs) Succeeding on the other hand, you know, when you're not like, when you're, when you're not in danger of going out of business, when it's not an existential decision, when you're just really trying to figure out, well, what's the best thing I could be working on today? Nothing I'm going to do today is going to kill the company. Therefore, what's the most important thing I should be doing? Man, that is so much more stressful. Oh gosh. Yeah. So a lot of this is like, you know, again, it's, you know, I almost feel like this is the, you know, the, the scared straight, you know, talk for founders where it's like, it's going to cost you a lot. You go on this journey, you're going to pay a lot. You're going to pay, you're probably going to pay a lot and not get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. But if you do succeed, you're going to pay even more because it's just like, it's, 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 it's tough. Having said that, you know, obviously failure happens all the time and it's not, it's a thing that you just have to, you just have to accept. I would only ever, it's so painful failing. I would only ever want to do it for things that are so important to me that it's worth paying that price, which really constrains the kinds of, the, the, the kinds of stuff that I would work on. And, and I guess the most important thing when you, when you're failing is to recognize when it's happening just so that you can give up, <laughs> you can quit sooner rather than later. Again, we have this, we have this like, I think fetish towards, uh, you know, always stick with it. Never take no for an answer. No, God, usually take no for an answer. No, is a great answer. Almost all the time. It's great. Like, like you're, if you know, if you know, you're going to fail anyway, if you're more likely to, you're much better off getting it out of the way sooner rather than later, because then you have got more time to do other things. In fact, at Old Turtles, we have a whole taxonomy uh, of, of startup failures. When we, when we hear a pitch at, at Old Turtles, we have this, this taxonomy that we've developed so that we know how to talk about it internally, about what, what is the most likely way for it to fail. And we do that so that we know what to work on first, hmm. because we always want to work on the thing that's most likely to make you fail. We always want to run at the hardest problems first, because if they're the hardest problems and if, they're, if that's what's going to kill us, let's, let's let, it, let it have us kill us sooner rather than later so that we can like have as much of our lives left to do other things. Yes. So always kind of, so we kind of, we, we, we look at a startup pitch and we'll classify, we'll say, oh, that's a Costner or that's a new Coke or that's a flying shoe uh, as a way to focus. Each of these things like means something in, in the old turtles language as a way to like focus what to, what to work on. So we are almost like anticipating where the most likely failures are so that we can run at those things first. And if we happen to survive them, then, you know, we can, we can, we can work on, on other stuff. But yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I've failed at a tremendous number of things do all the time. Most of the anecdotes aren't like, they're not particularly charming or funny. They're just painful. You know, you put your life into something and it doesn't work out. I think everyone has failed at, at huge numbers of things. I think I've also been lucky enough and privileged enough to have some successes. And those two things aren't necessarily flip sides of each other. So I would say like, if you're going into a startup, you're going to fail. That's guaranteed. Failure is guaranteed. Success is not guaranteed. You might, you may fail a bunch and then also succeed a little bit, or you may fail a bunch and not succeed at all. But yeah, like getting, getting comfortable, getting your head around what failure means and how to deal with it is, is very important because that's basically the life you're setting out for if you decide to do this. Excellent. All right. There's a question I've been working on that I haven't found the answer to. And so you're going to have to make the question. I've asked several people, what's a question that I should ask Phil that nobody else has asked him? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. This is, this is the question I totally didn't prepare you for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if it was that, were, did you prepare me for any other questions or should, were there I notes so. I was supposed to read that I didn't read? Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone, I, 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 um, I don't know, man, that's, that's, that's good. Um, I, I, I kind of have like, I kind of think the world for me is divided into kind of two parts. There is stuff that I decide is not important to me. 
And that stuff, sometimes I know a lot about it. Sometimes I don't know anything about it, but like, it's okay. And if I happen to know, like, for example, Star Wars, like Star Wars is not that important to me. I just happen to know a lot about it because I'm a giant Star Wars fan. So I can sure. talk about various aspects of Star Wars endlessly, but it's not, it's, not, it's not that important to me. I just know a lot about it. There's other stuff that I'm not important about that I don't know anything about. And then there's stuff that like, that, 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 that is important to me that I've decided is important to me. And those things, I know every single thing to like extreme detail. Because like, I couldn't tolerate not knowing something. If something is important to me and I get this feeling that like, oh, I'm living in some kind of sense of mystery, like something is vague. There's like a little, something is cloudy, something is foggy. Then it's like, I literally have an allergic reaction to it. Like I'm just going to work ceaselessly to like clarify whatever, whatever, whatever those points are. And it doesn't, it doesn't like, it doesn't leave much room for, for things that I like, but that aren't important to me. I tend to you know, with very small exceptions, like Star Wars, I tend to just like, if something is important to me, I'll, I'll sooner or later wind up working on it, like professionally, just because everything just kind of gets sucked into that vortex. And so it's a good question to be like, well, what is, what are some of the things I like that I don't work on? And, 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 and why not? Like, why aren't I working on them? And am I going to start? Or like, should there be more things that are just like hobbies or interests that I don't ever work on? Is that kind of a freeing thing? I don't know. I, I haven't really like thought about it much. I wind up, I wind up spending the vast majority of my time talking about things that, you know, that I think are important to me and that I'm just kind of living in, you know, day and night and would be, would be interesting sometimes to have a conversation about, about some of the more superfluous stuff. That's just interesting. Hmm. I think this is a good way to wrap up the show. Maybe one day we'll have you on again. I'll ask you that question again and see what comes out. I'll I'll, I'll prepare for it better next time. (laughs) That's great. You did great. Thanks, Phil, for spending so much time with me and the built beacon What's this podcast? The Bentonville Beacon <laughs> audience. Uh, Thank you. Today, you know, I, I feel like we're really blessed to live in a place where we can live life. I was going to say work and play and all those words that we all use, but to live, yeah. to live life in a place where we can actually do that. And, uh, you know, from time to time, I, I catch you on some other shows. I've checked in on some, some places where you've talked and I hear you talk about Bentonville or Northwest Arkansas and, you know, I'm paid to tell people how amazing this place <laughs> is. And it just doesn't fall the same, right? As when you say it, you're sharing the story of your own free will. And I appreciate that, especially as an, really selfishly as an economic developer, I appreciate it because it makes my life easier. But I also appreciate and I'm deeply grateful that you share the story because I think people need to know. They need to know they can live life differently, whether it's here or wherever. I think it's a really cool place. Uh, I'm very grateful to everyone that's that's welcomed me here and made us feel welcome. It's been it's been really made us feel like like we belong. You know, this is this is actually really cool. Uh, you know, the the at the momentary right, which is right across the street from 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 our offices. Uh, you know, it's got the big "You belong here" uh, right art. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to one of my board members. And she, she had done a lot of work on like, with like special, special forces teams and like elite athletes and like all sorts of like elite organizations, which is the kind that I'm trying to make some of our companies. And she said the difference, there's a big difference between belonging to something and, and feeling like you're included. She mm-hmm. said, do you know what the difference is between belonging and being included? And I said, no, what? She said, you can only belong to something that you help create. And I thought that was really kind of corny, but also like awesome and true and good. And like, this is exactly right. Like, I feel like I belong here and I feel that way because I have the opportunity to co-create it. It wasn't just like being welcomed in and being invited. It's not a passive thing. It is an, it is a, it is an act of collaborative creation. We can create this place the way we want it to be. And that's the only way we can belong to a place is if we help create it. 
And then we can use that as a model for the next, you know, the next hundred small cities in, in the U.S. Wow. You know, that just happens to be my favorite piece of art in town. And I, I love that you've said this because I also believe and I've been telling people that the folks who are attracted to Bentonville themselves are builders and builders by nature are actually givers. Probably some of the biggest givers there, there are. They just give and give of themselves and it's part of the building process. And, and you're right, you can't belong unless you're part of creating. And so that sign has this in that way, this, I don't know if circular is the right word, yeah. way of, of proving itself, yeah. self out every day. Just want to thank you also real quick for your, your commitment to the startup community and the, the help you've given there, as well as, you know, the part to the University of Arkansas, your, your uh, help with them. I think thank that's you. wonderful. So I guess I'm a little late to the show saying this. Welcome home. <laughs> thank you. Turbentville Beacon audience. Thanks for sharing your time for another episode. I'd love it if you could do me uh, two favors. Neither of those favors include cash or your social, your social security number or your firstborn child. They're pretty simple. The first one is share this episode and others with your, your friends, whether that's by text or email or social media is even better. And come back. Come back to hear more stories from Bentonville's leaders and businesses and to hear how Northwest Arkansas is a place where you can get more of what you want and less of what you don't. And of course, check out all the episodes at BentonvilleEconomicDevelopment.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast. Great. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Bentonville Beacon Podcast. We hope to see you next week.